0: It's Thursday, November 4th. I'm a little hesitant to talk about this because I haven't technically officially confirmed it, but I'm pretty sure about the information. A couple of ex-Screeching Weasel members have uh, announced this on social media that uh, the first Screeching Weasel drummer, Steve Cheese, his real name was Steve Dubick, uh, died yesterday, I believe. Uh, Steve was originally from Sturgeon Bay, which is in Door County. It's kind of the first the first real town you hit when you go up to Door County. And he had moved to Illinois to go to school at DeVry. So when he joined the band, he was living in Lombard, Illinois, which is a western suburb, uh, we had put an ad in the paper for a drummer, and he answered it, and he lived in Illinois for a few years, I think a couple years after he left the band, he moved back to Wisconsin and lived, uh, in Green Bay and the Fox Valley, I don't know, is Green Bay technically part of the Fox Valley, I don't think it is, but, uh, in any case, I, I don't have any other details. I don't, uh, I reached out uh, to a friend of his but, but hadn't heard back. Um, you know, I hadn't, I don't think any of us have been in touch with him for over 30 years. I certainly haven't, uh, except to get, um, you know, occasionally get a note from him about an address change uh, for sending his royalty checks. But, uh, you know, it's it was the first drummer in the band. And so, uh, you know, you kind of then start thinking about those times and those days and really how different things were and think about how, you know, especially, you know, Steve played on the first two albums. And, I mean, those were times when there was just no... Uh, <laughs> there was no delusion whatsoever I mean it was you. we went out and did it because it was a thing to do and I think for him it was you know a welcome break from you know going to school and working and spending most of his time doing that and uh it was just kind of a fun thing to do in your off time uh And, you know, that's, and especially when you're young as we were, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of fun that comes with that, of course, a lot of bad stuff too, but, uh, but just, you know, I've been thinking about some of that stuff over the past days, some of those times and, uh, and some of the really, uh, at times extreme, uh, situations that we ended up in on stage, uh, by design for the most part, but, uh, I'm not going to get all into it here because I, I don't like telling war stories mainly because I don't like hearing them from other people. I don't find them very interesting, but, uh, anyway, I, you know, my prayers are, with his family, and uh, and it's a it's you know he he died too young. Rest in peace, Steve Cheese. Uh, one of the problems with being intelligent—I refer not to myself here—I am not particularly intelligent. I'm not stupid, but I'm not. Uh, Mensa does not want me as a member. But one of the problems my observation has been with being intelligent is that sometimes you are surrounded by people throughout your life who remind you how intelligent you are. And a couple of bad things can result from that. One of them is is you can put too much emphasis on that and not enough on wisdom. Because intelligence without wisdom often leads to some very bad things. But the other thing, and this is a very common trap, especially uh, in in Western culture in the 21st century, is that intelligence often convinces people um, that they know more than they do about things that they don't really know anything about. To put it more simply, uh, they think that their intelligence is the same thing as expertise in any given field. If they apply their intelligence to any problem or any situation, they're going to have the best ideas and they're going to have insights that nobody else is going to have and so forth. And I mention all this because I think uh, this may be what happened to Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers led the media and by extension the fans to believe that he had been vaccinated uh, against COVID. Uh, if you go back and look, he, he he's asked and he says, yeah, I've been immunized. So he deliberately misled the press and it turns out the Packers weren't following protocol because the NFL does not consider him immunized because he hasn't gotten the vaccination. So there's certain protocols that uh, players who haven't been vaccinated have to follow, and the Packers were not making him follow those rules, maybe because Aaron Rodgers likes to throw tantrums, and they've probably had enough of that over the past year. Let sleeping dogs lie, as they say. But the problem is whether you're pro- or anti-vaccination doesn't enter into it. The problem is he knows what the rules are. So if you are vaccinated and you test positive for COVID, there's one set of rules. You have to have two negative tests within a 24-hour period, I believe, in order to come off the COVID list. If you're unvaccinated, there's a different rule. And that rule is you're out 10 days, minimum. Of course, you you have to test negative at the end of that time as well. So he will not be playing in this Sunday's game against the Chiefs, and it's a Chiefs team that has been underperforming, that has been reeling, and that's very beatable. And instead, the Packers will be starting Jordan Love, who has never started an NFL game. So he's costing the team. And I think we don't know the details yet, or I don't. I haven't checked the internet yet today. I've been working since 5 this morning. But uh, but as far as I know from when I went to bed last night, we don't know what his uh, regimen was to, uh, cause him to claim that he was immunized, but it appears to be some sort of alternative health situation. And it seems to me that if that's the case, and it probably is, that this is a case of a smart guy thinking he's an expert when he's not. It's also a case, I think, of, of just complete disregard for, for, uh, for your fan base and and to some extent your your teammates in the organization, although presumably they all knew that he wasn't vaccinated. But to put the fans in a position like something I read yesterday where somebody was like, Yep, yeah, I got tickets for my first Packer game. I was going to see Aaron Rodgers play. That's not happening, <laughs> you know, down in Kansas City. I mean, it's just it's um I don't, I don't know what, you know, typically I don't get upset about, uh, about what people in sports or entertainment do. I don't typically care. Are you good at what you do? That, that's really it. I don't care about your personality. I don't care about the dumb things that you said on social media or whatever, but there's something increasingly about Aaron Rodgers that makes me want to the organization, to just cut him loose, make him somebody else's headache. I'm just tired of it, man. Nothing is ever this guy's fault. And he wasn't always like this, it seems to me. It's in the past couple of years, two, three years. But I mean, if he overthrows a guy, the look on his face says it's somebody else's fault and he's pissy about it, you know? He just doesn't seem to take responsibility. And I don't, I would imagine in that situation, it wouldn't be a lot of, fun to be a teammate of his. And I think, um, you know, the incessant complaining about, about the, the, you know, the organization isn't doing what he wants. I mean, yeah, they brought in a great coach. They uh, put together a great team. It, it just wasn't good enough for him. So there's something about it, and I don't, you know, I'm not proud of it. I should let it roll off my back. It's not like it keeps me up at night, but it does irritate me a little bit. I wish it didn't, but the thing about living in Wisconsin is this is different as far as I know from anywhere else in the country, certainly different from Chicago. There are football fanatics everywhere, but in Wisconsin, pretty much everybody's a Packer fan. You might not be into sports at all. You're still a Packer fan. The, the the Packers are really—it's cliched, but it really is kind of a religion up here. The other sports franchises up here don't don't have the kind of devotion, the almost religious devotion that the Packers do. For my uh, for my part, when I moved up here, I wasn't really a fan of any particular NFL team. I I hated the Bears. I hate that organization. Uh, they're just they're born losers, and they're always going to be losers unless uh, the McCaskies sell the team. Uh, but uh, but when I moved up here, I immediately became a Packer fan. It's a great organization. It doesn't have a an owner. Uh, it has a board. It's publicly owned, technically, and uh, and there's something really. I guess you have to experience it. There's something really endearing and charming about uh, about Packer fans. You know, they're not loud, obnoxious jerks. It's not like the kind of fans you're going to get out in. Well, you used to get out in Oakland or in Philly or even Chicago. Uh, it's not that loud mouth, drank too much. I'm going to act like a freaking idiot and, you know, start fights and, you know, throw snowballs at Santa and that kind of thing. That was Philly, I think. Uh, you know, they're uh, gregarious, outgoing, passionate about their team, but, you know, a little good-natured ribbing when you show up in your bear jersey or your Viking jersey, But uh, but, you know, they're not going to try and murder you. So, anyway... One other thing I wanted to talk about today is, uh, and I don't know why I was thinking about this, I don't know what happened that made me think about this, but I was thinking about some of uh, the records that we made in the late 90s, early 2000s, and how, how those records aren't, you know, several of those records are not very good. And trying, and I've felt that way for a long time, but trying to put my finger on what it is about them. And I think it's a couple of things, but the thing I was thinking about this morning over my first cup of coffee was uh, the idea that when you create something, when you do any kind of creative work, your job is to give life to an idea. So not just to do it, but to do it in a way that brings it to life. That probably sounds obvious, but uh, but it's, it's really not when you're doing it. When you start out, inspiration uh, can go a long way. You can get by on about 95% inspiration to 5% good old-fashioned roll-up-your-sleeves shirt work. Because when you're starting out, you are filled with ideas. There is more that you want to do than you can do. And so... And also... You know by the time you make your first record, you've probably spent a pretty significant amount of time working on stuff. So you're kind of bursting at the seams, and that can last for for you know two, three, even four records, where you've kind of built up a lot of material. for instance, i I know it was said that the Ramones had um, had m- most of the material for the first three albums and I think part of the fourth before they ever made the first album. So, uh, so you've got this big rush of creativity happening and you've spent a lot of time on it. But as time goes on, that ratio goes from about 95, five down, you know, it's, it keeps crawling a little bit lower and really, you know, you'll, you'll, end up, I think a lot of people end up around more of a, you know, 60, 40 or 50, 50 ratio. And one of the things you realize is that inspiration is not as big a deal as you think it is when you start, because when you start, it's this magical thing. It's this thing that is beyond you where, um, it can seem sometimes as though songs are just delivered to you, already written, which really isn't the case, but it feels that way. And, uh, and as you uh, get more experience working, you kind of can slow down and see that process for what it is and see how it actually unfolds, and you realize that that actually there's a lot more work involved than you probably realized at the time because it just didn't seem like work or uh, you didn't classify it as work. Because one of the great myths that is and has been the ruination of of many good songwriters is the myth that, uh, that everything should be... Um, kind of spontaneous, and that if you think about your work more than a tiny bit, you're going to ruin it, right? So if you, if you analyze it and think about it and sit down and do the work in a methodical way, step by step, where you know there's kind of a set of rules, as it were, and, uh, and a series of steps that you can take uh, there, are, there is a belief, and I had this belief when I was younger, that that is bad for uh, songs if you want your songs to have a, a spontaneous immediacy. If you want there to be an urgency to your songs, you can't labor over them. This is, as it turns out, as I learned, completely wrong. Uh, songs are like any other creative work; they are, to a very large extent, illusion. So, you are your goal as a as a songwriter, as your goal would be if you were a sculptor or a painter or a novelist or a playwright or screenwriter, filmmaker. Your goal is to create a work that gives the illusion of unfolding spontaneously even though there's a whole bunch of good old-fashioned hard work going on behind the scenes. But what you do have to do is you have to give it life. Now, a lot of that comes more or less naturally when you're young. So you think back to what I was saying earlier about how you've got all this all these ideas and all this energy. You're younger, so you have a lot more energy. But you've got a lot of creative energy, and and it, you know, typically everybody's excited about the work they're doing, and so even when you're pretty rough around the edges, maybe musicianship wise and and writing wise, um, the you know the sheer enthusiasm helps to give what you're doing life. But it's impossible to maintain that for any length of time. Nobody in history has ever done it. It can't be done. Because that sort of thing is by definition uh, temporary. So in order to give a thing life, once you get beyond that initial burst, you have to develop your craft. And the problem of how to give something life, how to go beyond looking at the words on the paper or listening to the, to the music and analyzing the technical aspects of it and determining whether they you know, work correctly or not, you have to go beyond that. So you've got to have the craft. If you don't have that, you're in trouble. So you've got to have the craft, but it's not enough. You have to have something on top of that to give it life. And typically, this will be performance. That'll be the primary way you do it. So you want your instrumentation to play up to the strengths of the song without ever overpowering it. So you want interesting things happening in your instrumentation, but they can't be so interesting that they only appeal to other musicians. They can't overshadow the actual song. All the parts that happen have to support the song. They have to make the song better while not drawing undue attention to themselves. When they do draw attention to themselves, and that happens sometimes, it has to be in the right way, which is a way where it's it almost becomes uh, like a piece of punctuation in a sentence, right? Or like bolding or underlining or italicizing a word. But performance isn't the only thing. The other thing that has quite a lot to do with it, is your recording. You can suck the life out of something with a bad recording. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, no, Ben Weasel, you're wrong. I've heard lots of records that were badly recorded, and I love them. Me too. I'm not saying if something is recorded badly, it's going to suck the life out of it. What I'm saying is there are certain things that can happen during a bad recording that will suck the life out of something. It's a risk you run when you're working on a very low budget and you're maybe working with an engineer who doesn't share your vision. And that was pretty common when we started out because it was basically unheard of to find an engineer who specialized in punk rock. So typically typically you were getting guys who came from the real kind of seventies rock world where, um, everything cost a lot of money and everything. There were certain things done recording wise, um, certain conventions that if you did them with punk, they sounded pretty bad. They were inappropriate for the genre. So, uh, so it was very common at that time. Nowadays, it's it's a different story. But the other thing that plays into it is your arrangements. Very, very, very important part of, of the process. And it is a part that I find more than any other part uh, of of songwriting and of putting together a record for bands that is neglected or if, if not outright neglected underappreciated and undervalued arrangements are huge they're huge they matter your tempo really 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 matters okay the tempo that you set on your demo when you first sit down to demo your song almost certainly is wrong it's almost certainly the wrong tempo in my case, I tend to set my, my tempi a little low. They tend to be on the, on the slower side. That's probably because I'm not a particularly skilled guitarist, and I prefer to play a little bit slower. I can kind of get into the groove of the thing a little bit easier if it's not too fast. But I know that about myself, so when I am working with the producer on the demos... I will say, oh, by the way, here's the tempo for this one, and it should probably be knocked up. You know, it's usually, I'll say, five or six beats per minute. So it's not radically slow, but it's a little a little too slow. It'll lag a little if you were to keep that tempo. But a lot of people will set that tempo, and that's it. They can't hear it in their head any other way. Um, and a lot of things will get set in stone in that process. So you got to avoid that as a writer, and I think that goes for any kind of art as well. I think um, when, you're, when you write, for instance, a short story, nobody in their right mind is going to stick with their first draft. So when you go back and you rewrite multiple times, that is the equivalent, to my mind, of working on the arrangement. Uh, making a sketch before you begin your painting and kind of altering that sketch maybe making multiple sketches that's all kind of figuring out how it's going to be and then once you've figured that out you go from there of course you can work out a lot of the arrangement stuff in the rehearsal room with the band or in my case if your band uh, members reside in different states you can just do that uh over the internet so you know i'll put together a a Demo and and uh, and once I've sorted out the the ar- the basic arrangement with the uh, producer, then the other guys will work on the instrumentation. And sometimes, not often, but sometimes that will affect the arrangement to some degree. Typically, uh, it would be with an intro or an outro. In any case, these are the elements that give a song life that give it something that is beyond just the nuts and bolts that make up the different parts, but that infuse it with a kind of energy that hopefully translates to the listener and creates a thing that seems to have always been in existence in a way, or that seems to have been um, sort of seems to have gone from thought to reality in a split second. It's not magic. It's hard work. So I think that's what we were missing on those records. The arrangements weren't there. And the songs, by the way, were not, they weren't always my, I wasn't always at the top of my game songwriting wise. A lot of the blame uh, can only rest with me for why those, um, uh, Those things didn't come together. But I think um, once we get out of the realm of all the things that were unquestionably my fault, I think one of the big things that held us back in the late 90s was that the other musicians were too beholden to what they viewed as the legacy of the band. So there was not, we weren't able to stretch out and do the kind of things that I wanted to do but couldn't quite articulate because I'm not really a musician first and foremost. So I couldn't sit down and say, play, the, play this drum part because I don't play the drums. Uh, most of the ideas that I had for what I wanted to happen on guitar, especially with guitar leads um, or even bass parts, were things that I wasn't capable of playing. Of course, it's a lot easier now because when you work with MIDI, you can do pretty much anything and uh, you can go wild. But even so, I think there was, I I know because I was told by several people that I worked with at that time, not just on the Screeching Weasel records that I'm not too fond of, but my first solo record as well. So, well, that, that doesn't really sound like Screeching Weasel. And my attitude was good. We, if, 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 as soon as we start trying to sound the way we used to sound, we're in trouble. And I think that's what happened. And I think that's why those records, and, you know, plenty of people really like those records, but I think that's why, to me, they sound pretty stale and sterile and more than anything, lifeless. They don't have that life. The arrangements aren't there. The arrangements don't take the song to a different level. The instrumentation doesn't take that song to a different level. It's there, it's serviceable, it's acceptable. But it's the kind of record that I always hated in the 80s that some of my favorite bands would make. They get a little more money, they go into the studio, things would be tighter for sure. The vocals would be better. The instruments would be played better, but there was no life in it. And it's because you're 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 not compensating and you have to do it consciously you're not compensating for what you've lost by no longer being young and excited and full of energy you have to compensate for that somehow and that's how you do it you do it through instrumentation and you do it through arrangements and the easiest way to do that is to find a producer who understands and appreciates your songwriting and has the same goals that you have, which should be to make the songs as good as they can be. Luckily, Screeching Weasel has that in our producer, Mike Kennedy, who I believe is just now getting back to mixing our new album. So with any luck at all, we'll have this thing mixed within, I don't know, two, three weeks and send it off to be mastered. I'm excited about it. It's a really, really good record and... I think all these things I've been talking about are exhibited on this record. The the musicians did a really fantastic job, and who they are and what they bring to the table is probably on better display on this record than anything we've done before. Um, and the arrangements, which is largely uh, Mike Kennedy, are... Uh, are really good and really solid and you have all these cool things going on but nothing drags, nothing takes too long. It gets to the point, it does what it sets out to do and then it ends and the next one starts. So the whole thing comes in probably I'm guessing under 33 minutes for 14 songs. But 33, I'm hoping, very enjoyable minutes As always, I will see you, I'd say on Monday, but you're going to see me next or hear me next uh, when I have a little time, which I can never tell when that's going to be anymore. Um, As always, I love you very much. And until next podcast, wake up with your piss hot. So long.